Welcome to A Tribe Called Yes, the podcast that brings you closer to the world's most notorious risk takers, trailblazers, and enemies of the status quo. Now, here's your host, Darren K. Roberts. Today, let's welcome top poker player and consultant John Armbrust. He graduated from Duke University and joined Teach for America in Atlanta, where he found his passion for educational reform. Today, you can find him back in Austin working on his charter school, Austin Achieve. Welcome to the tribe, John Armbrust. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Thank you. So we're going to take the first quarter of your life. And so what's it like to be you? What's it like to be you growing up in Austin? Uh, I had a great upbringing here in Austin. I mean, it's an amazing town, as uh, a lot of people have discovered. Too many people, perhaps, because yes. uh, they keep coming by the droves. But yeah, I mean, my family structure has been awesome. Um, parents still live here. My sister has settled here. Um, so it's just really uh, great growing up. Got to be very active, playing sports. Um, did great in school. Which sports did you play? Uh, I played golf was probably my main sport. Uh, I love playing basketball. It's probably my favorite sport. I just can't really jump that high or, or do much, uh, but it was definitely a passion of mine, which may or may not have been a reason why I chose the school I chose. Um, and really just a little bit of everything. Played a little bit of football and just love being competitive and, and being active. So let's say in the third grade, what do you think you're going to do with your life? <laughs> of course, every kid's going to be a professional athlete. So I <laughs> was dead set I would be a professional golfer. Completely confident on that. Um, didn't quite make it, but uh, that's okay. Didn't even make it to college, but uh, to play golf, so... So the, okay, so second quarter. So now you're moving into middle school, and how are you? Are you still playing a lot of sports even during that time? Yeah, I think I've converted from kind of the ball sports uh, to well, active triathlete now. Uh, mm. Just completed my first marathon recently, nice. and just love being active. I, I found that once you get to be 35, the, the knees and the joints kind of reject the notion of basketball and football. I've tried. I coach the girls' soccer team at the school I, I run, but even playing soccer with, with the kids um, has led to a couple minor middle-aged guy injuries that I'm trying to avoid so I can stay on top of the training. So what's your marathon? What was your time? 3.29. Um, and my goal now in the next 12 months is qualify for Boston, which for my age is, I believe, 3.10. So it's going to be a tough nut to crack, but... I'm pretty competitive and, and I'm going to go for it and we'll see where it lands. I want to come back to that. I only, I max out at the 5k level. Like that's it. <laughs> you know, my wife's done the half marathons and I just say, hey, 5k, I'm trying to get a sub 25k right now. It's been eluding me. I'm, I'm around a minute off, which is going to be tough, but, uh, I think anybody can do distance. It's just a total mind game. You just got to get into it and just be someone who enjoys a little bit of pain and a little bit of crazy. So working through the second quarter that you're in a high school, what, what are you thinking about in terms of, is there a strong push for you to go anywhere in particular for college? Are you open? Yeah. So in seventh grade, I participated in this thing called the Duke Talent Search and happened to do pretty well and had the opportunity to go to Duke. Kind what of is that? Because I took the test and I had a chance to go and didn't. I've always wondered like, what happens? Like, yeah, so if you do well, you basically go to Duke and they give you an award and it's like the top whatever percent of kids. So kids are there from all over and you're there for three, four days and just interacting with these all really impressive kids. And then it also opens you up to doing summer programs. So after that, I did a couple programs on Duke's campus and that experience was like, wow, this is a really great place. But even prior to that, being the basketball fan that I am, this guy named Coach K is running pretty pretty solid programs. I always had loved Duke ever since, dare I say it, Christian Leitner. It was uh -oh. pretty, pretty awesome. 
awesome, in my opinion. It's kind of a bipolar comment. I get that. Um, but I totally loved Duke basketball growing up. And then I realized through the Duke town search process, it's like a really great academic school and the culture was really great. So I'd say in seventh grade, it's like, this is where I want to go. And so knowing how competitive it is to get in, it actually gave me a little motivation to, to apply some of my educational ability in, in high school. And so I did what I needed to do to get into Duke and, um, one of the best decisions I ever ever made. Now, did you apply to any other schools? Or you was it Duke or Bus for you? I, I applied early decision to Duke just to kind of have a backup as needed. I applied to Notre Dame early action and got into to both. And still remember the day, December seventh, nineteen ninety nine, when I got that acceptance <laughs> letter. And um, yeah, it was it was awesome. Small letter, large envelope. It was it was the large envelope. Yeah, and and the Notre Dame letter came the same day. But I just like kind of put that put aside. It's like, nice to be able to kind of put the Notre Dame letter on the yeah. back burner and say yeah and my dad brought home a dog that same day and of course we named the dog duke so nice. it's kind of a, <laughs> nice. a weird memorable day <laughs> nice okay so you're about to graduate what about profession are you thinking you thinking engineering at that point no well i was thinking something math based um so in terms of career no in terms of major perhaps i kind of had an intent to um, go to college and either get into business or possibly go to law school something kind of in the more for-profit sector but during my high school years and especially during my college years i had the opportunity to plug into a lot of nonprofit work and, and a lot of working with youth and just really saw firsthand like you can really make a difference in the lives of kids if you just invest that time that energy and, and a lot of our population just needs direction and needs mentors and and just needs supports and and i somewhere in my heart i knew i had found something that was drawing me in so through the college years i was like well you know i can do engineering i did a couple summer internships in engineering space but i just find myself was bored as heck and was like you know i need to work with kids so it became pretty obvious when i met a teach for america recruiter while at college like education is, is something I need to explore. Is either that or be a youth director through a program called Young Life. Those were kind of like yeah, the two things yeah. that were at the forefront when I was approaching graduation. So you meet the Teach for America rep and it provided the social piece that you were looking to yeah the, the rep had taught in i believe it was new jersey for a couple of years but you could just see the passion she had for youth and i had that similar passion and she also had a really interesting background having attended an ivy league school and she said look i could have done gone to wall street could have been an investment banker but i just i found my calling in, in working with kids and i was like wow that's like that, that totally could be me because here I am at Duke doing engineering, but I'm volunteering 20 hours a week through Young Life. So clearly I've got a heart and a passion for kids and I guess you could say leaving the world in a better place. And so it just seemed to be the right synergy of like, this is a great program, nationally respected. You get to make a big difference. In particular, there's a massive shortage for math teachers. I've got a math background. Gee, this like all the dots add up pretty clearly. Okay. So was it difficult at all knowing that, so you're in this class a very accomplished, soon-to-be engineers at Duke. Was it difficult to sort of take this sharp left? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I'd say there's two separate answers to that. The thing I love about Duke is they do, or at least the engineering department, does such a good job of building, I guess you could say, entrepreneurs, whether that's for-profit or not, but they really teach you just kind of life skills and just to really go after it. I can't tell you how many friends I have who are Duke grads who have started their own thing or just like, 
think of something totally creative and they're just getting after it and doing it. And I remember my senior year, the professor asked a class of about 20 of us, like, how many of y'all have taken your PE or the exam to become an engineer? Not a single one of us raised their hands. And he's like, well, what are y'all all doing? And then he went around. We all had these different creative ideas like, whoa. So Duke creates a space for, I guess, kids like me. And then I also attribute a lot of my uh, ability to just follow my passion to my parents. I mean, I think they've always created a space where, you know, my dad was a lawyer for, still is a lawyer for 40 plus years, but he never put any pressure on me to like come take over the law firm or do anything like that. He's like, just do what you want. And and my mom uh, is a psychologist and both me and my sister are in education because I feel like my parents really raised us with certain values, just really loving working with kids. And it's not a surprise that we do things that we love and we both ended up in this space where we work with kids. It's really, it's been really cool. And my parents deserve that credit. So the TFA, the Teach for America selection process, I only know it from you know, the outside looking in. It seems to be some sort of like mix between medical residency and like papal selection. You know, like you you list where you want to go. They give you the they come back with. Is it just one location they say hey this is where you're going to be or do you get a, a yeah, choice yeah that's that's uh so i think it changes every year but when i was doing it i got some advice and i'm not sure if you were supposed to do it but basically a friend of mine who went he was familiar with the selection process uh, he basically said john like there's a way to like increase your odds so to speak because they basically had you rate high medium or low different cities and there was an expectation that you rate an equal amount high equal amount low and an equal amount medium. He's like, but if you only rate like two or three high and everything else really, really low, the formula will put you in one of those three high by default. I was like, ah, this sounds great. So I I got my uh, top choice kind of using the uh, advised methodology to, I don't know, gain the system is quite the right word, but just use math to increase your your odds of success, which is kind of what I do in every component of my life all the time. So the engineer just games the system and says, okay, I'm going to only give you one option to spit out for me, and it's L.A. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, I started in Atlanta. Atlanta um, exactly. I got placed in Atlanta. I was there for um, two years. Uh, was the initial placement, of course, and I was teaching eighth grade math. And honestly, as much as I just told you all about my passion for kids, I still thought I would go and maybe do law school or something else. But it really, was within that first semester, and I still remember you know, the students I was working with that first semester, I saw firsthand, like, look, I can have a transformative impact on this child's life through teaching math. I mean, in these kids, were had very interesting you know, backgrounds, home life situations, and I saw them excelling in math. And by extension, they were making better life decisions and still keep in touch with a lot of these guys on Facebook, which has been really cool. So, you know, long story short, I was like, you know, education is what's for me. And so I decided to stay a third year in Atlanta. And that was a traditional public school. And I had a positive experience. It was, a, I'd say, a slightly higher performing you know, public school, but within, a, would say, a broken public school system. That's where I had heard of these things called charter schools, but really didn't know what they were about. So that, that was the L.A. transition is to like, I need to just take a risk here. I, I'm going to move cross country because I want to see what these charter schools are all about and if they're the real deal or not. Because honestly, I was a skeptic at the time. I was like, I, I don't know. So from Atlanta to L.A., that's a big transition. And for a lot of people, that wouldn't seem to be a very logical chain of events, I guess. So what what was what was the pull yeah, to L.A. for you? It was um, 
a couple different things. I like big cities. I feel like I wanted to be somewhere that was it was a larger city. And truly, this charter school thing was real. I'm definitely very reform minded, just in general, but in particular about education. And and you know, I really dedicated my whole life to seeing if we can make the education system better mm-hmm. in my own way. And so I felt like charter schools were something that you needed to go learn about. And so back in the day when I was making this decision in I guess 2006, the charter schools did not have a big presence nationally. The the hotbeds were kind of the northeast uh, or out in LA and in the California area and the northeast just happens to be a little bit colder than LA so it's like LA <laughs> sounds kind of good big city and warm let's go for it it's an easy one and then talk about your time in LA what was it like yeah, it was a truly transformative experience there. I was there just under five years. I started as just a math teacher at a school, a charter school there. Uh, and I was part of a charter school network that um, was in South Central LA. And the schools there, about a third of the students who went to the traditional public schools graduated and went to college. And only 10% of that same population made it through college. We serve the same population of kids at our charter school. 100% of our kids went to college. And 70% of that first graduating class made it through college. So it's that 70 to 10 number. Again, this is the same demographic population. Like, you know, there's a lot of common misconceptions about charter schools. There's, there's, you know, all these things people say, but like, you can't argue with 70 to 10, like seven times more likely to produce a college ready student because they came to our school. Same, same population of kids. So I started as a math teacher, became an administrator, then worked in our home office. So truly I saw how you run a high performing charter school from so many different angles, from the classroom to the administrative side of things. And it was those, you know, five years like, wow, like I understand what charter schools look like and how they work and operate. And the schools I was at in LA had had their struggles, but I saw a lot of the good things. And so I saw both good and bad lessons learned. And that's when I started thinking, okay, I'm, I'm ready to come back to Austin and, and kind of make my impact here in, in the community I love. So before we get into the fourth quarter, what, what do you th- what do you think makes a good teacher? Like, what, what are the qualities that make a good teacher? Oh, gosh. Um, I'd say at least at Austin Achieve, the school I've, I've founded and run, uh, for us, we, we really now hire for what we call a culture fit over anything else. Uh, so we are not afraid to hire a teacher with zero experience uh, over a teacher with five or 10 years of experience who may have been a teacher of the year somewhere else if they're not a good culture fit. And so that that's a kind of a broad definition. So for us, uh, that culture fit, somebody who has a growth mindset, you know, assumes positive intent, really is there for the kids. And that's just the most overused expression in education ever. You know, it's do what's best for kids. But like, you, you can really sense that passion, that drive, that, that compassion they have for uh, for the kids. And, and so we are truly not afraid to, if we see that in someone during the interview process, like you're in we, and it's worked out really well for us. We've hired a number of first year teachers recently at the school and we don't have to because there's such demand working at the school. Um, but we, we choose to, and it's been working out beautifully um, for, for the organization and obviously for the kids. So, so tribe, you just heard John mention growth mindset and I'm just completing the Carol Dweck portion of my class this summer. And so you have to read Mindset by Carol Dweck, faculty member at Stanford University. And then Angela Duckworth also talks about grit. And I think that growth mindset and this this belief that that you have the ability to shape new outcomes for yourself. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because I think a lot of natural risk takers and risk seekers believe that. But I'm not sure it's the dominant belief just among people. Do you have any viewpoints on this kind of growth versus fixed mindset? And what do you think people are naturally inclined uh, I think to believe? I think people are 
definitely inclined to the, the more the fixed mindset because it's just a different state of both mind and practice to be so growth oriented. It's almost, I mean, if you're truly growth oriented, it means that you have to take risk and it means that you have to try new things and just changes inherently a struggle for a lot of people. I mean, they, they get really comfortable, at least you know, my experiences in the teaching world. I'm, I just can't tell you how many 25-year-old veteran teachers I've seen teaching that same exact lesson they taught in their second, third year because it worked. It, is it the best possible thing they could ever do? Arguably no, but is it working okay or good or possibly even a little bit great? Yeah, and that gets really comfortable. So unless you have just an ethos about you that just like is constantly trying to think about how I can get better or try something new and just have that creative strand to you, I think it's just by default you end up in that that other category. So then talk about the transition to L.A., Back to Austin? Yeah, so it was uh, definitely an interesting transition. So I had gained this great experience in charter schools in L.A. and was really intrigued about the idea of starting a charter school uh, here in Austin. And generally speaking, uh, the east side is where there are fewer educational opportunities, high-quality educational opportunities. If you look at the data, unfortunately, a lot of the middle schools, especially in east Austin, are just struggling and getting some some bad test scores and, and bad results and improvement required. So it seemed like a pretty obvious location to target east Austin in general if we wanted to provide a high-quality public school education option. But when we were in the planning stages, or when I was in the planning stages of, of Austin Achieve, a study that came out ranked one middle school in Northeast Austin in particular is literally the worst ranked middle school in the entire state of Texas. And as a very proud Austinite, I was like, that's not cool. Like, worst ranked middle school should be you know, in Houston, Dallas, not, 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 Austin, not, not here. Austin. That doesn't seem right. So we specifically targeted this one kind of Northeast Austin corridor uh, with the location of the school because we just wanted to be an educational option for families. We were not forcing kids to attend the school. We just, we just want to give you a choice because we don't think your educational future and basically, you know, the quality of your life should be dictated by the zip code you grew up in. That's nuts. Uh, and, you know, the, the population we serve is predominantly low income. So it's not like they can afford to go to private school and have a different choice. If they're zoned to attend that school, that's where that child's going unless they have a different free public school option. And so that's what we're providing. So to start Austin Achieve, I mean, that's a huge gamble. Yeah. But you're, you got a professional gambling background. So did you see it as a risky move when you? No. Well, so risk and gamble are such uh, interesting terms to me because I feel like people, a lot of times I describe when like you take a chance, you're you're gambling, you're risking. I, I just don't view things that way. I always view things in terms of like expected value. So yes, the chance might be whatever percent, but if the outcome yields this amount of benefit, you have to like multiply those two together and that creates, is this worth it or not? So it might be a one in chance of success, but it yields a thousand points of good. Like, yeah, that's, that's worth it. So you've got the decision tree up in the mirror and you're, you've got the branches and you're with the percentages. Yeah. I remember I was talking over with some close friends and my family about it. And I had a really good career going in the charter schools in LA. And I was going to be like on my way to senior management within this one entity that already exists exist, or I could take this chance and open up a new footprint uh, and serve families, again, back in my community. So it just seemed to be the most logical mathematical decision possible, even though there's risk, a gamble. I just, it, it's just, that's not how my brain works. It's like the math says you should do this. I mean, you just follow the math. And, and so the math yes, says you shouldn't go to law school? Yeah. What would I have done with that? That's more impactful than what I'm doing now. I mean, Austin, she currently serves 525 students. We'll have 720 in the fall. We'll be serving over 2000 in, in the next three years. So it's like we're having a transformative impact 
on families that truly need choice more than any in our community. And these kids are, are now on their way to, to college and they're going to have their own ripple effect. I mean, my dream is to have one of my kids come take over my job as the leader of the school system and, and just, you know, pay it forward. Uh, it's going to be, it's going to be a beautiful thing. Hmm. Talk about your time as a professional poker player. 2007, oh. you finished 18th. Yeah. The World so, Series. So one point of clarification, I'm not sure if I ever considered myself fully professional. Could I have gone pro at any time easily, but I have maintained a career in education and this has been my summer initiative. Pretty much every summer, I'll go out there for a couple of weeks. So in 07, I was still actually just a teacher at the time in Atlanta and I flew out there and I qualified to play in, in the World Series Poker main event, which... So back up, wait. Yeah. How does that happen, though? I mean, what, what's, what leads up to the we buy the ticket to go <laughs> tournament? So, oh, gosh. Um, the long slash short story is, is I played a lot of high school uh, poker in high school and did pretty well. And these are like the $5 buy-in games. And one summer, we was right after my freshman year of college, I'd come back for the summer. And literally at the end of the summer, I, I kind of calculated, kept track of my results, as an engineer would do. <laughs> and at these $5 games, my, my goal is always to win enough money for lunch the next day. And I realized like I had won money 22 sittings in a row. I was like, man, maybe I'm actually kind of good at this poker thing. And it was the same time when I was on TV, if, if you're our age and remember all that stuff. Um, and so I was like, all right, you know, I, I basically won about $200 for the entire summer. I'm going to try one time. I'll put a little online poker deposit and played one tournament. It was like $50 entry, had like 300 people in it. My very first online poker tournament, I won for like 3000 bucks. Like, okay, that was a fluke. Like, well, this, this is just complete luck. Um, you know, maybe I'm okay, but like, this is weird. I just beat all these people. I was like, I'm going to play one more tournament and I'm going to cash out. I'll be done with online poker. I don't want to get into this. Like, I, I'm a teacher, going to be teacher. I'm still in college at the time. And I won the second tournament for another, like, I don't know, 2000 bucks or something. And I was like, holy crap, I just won like thousands of dollars and I'm still in college playing online poker in like three hours. And I remember feeling so, frankly, I felt really guilty. And I went up to my dad and I was like, dad, I've got this confession to make. It's like, I tried this thing called online poker. And he's like, yes. <laughs> and he's like, and? I was like, well, I, I won like, you know, three or $4,000. And he's like, what? I was like, I thought he was going to be so mad at me. He gave me this big high five. He's like, that's so awesome. I'm proud of you. I'm like, dad, this poker online. He's like, oh, I thought you were going to say you rang up like $3,000 of credit card debt. Yeah, it's I'm like, like no. Talk I was like, before you're saying like you're getting hooked on cocaine or something. Like, yeah. No. So, so I dabbled in online poker and it, it's getting to the answer to your question. Um, some of the poker tournaments, instead of giving a cash prize, you win a seat into the main event in Las Vegas, uh, which is, if you're not a poker player, if you're a basketball player, it's like going to the Final Four, or football, Super Bowl, like for poker, like this is the biggest tournament in the world. You get seven, 8,000 players all putting up $10,000. First place, like 10 million bucks. It's on ESPN. It's, it's a big deal. And I'm this like 25 year old kid. I just won this seat online. I'm like, what is going on? So I was like, you know, I've got friends who play poker and I get to go do this really unique thing. So I said, I'm going to blog about this. And for a hundred bucks, you can get 1% of whatever I win. And all I promise is I'm going to tell you the stories, send out emails and just share my experience. Because if you had qualified, I would love to live vicariously through you. So I want to give that to them. And so the first year I went, there was 8,773 players, 2006. And at the end of the first day of competition, these tournaments are you know six or seven days long and you get knocked out. I think only about 2,000 or so players survived. And of those 2,000, I believe I was in about 10th place out of all the eight 
8,700 people that started tournament. I was like, oh my gosh. So I sent this long blog about it and my email list exploded. I was like, I'm forwarding this to like all my friends. So I started with like 10 people on my email list within like a day. I had like 300 people. And it was like so this. you, okay. So you, that first cut, you're sitting at 10th. Then you send that uh-huh. kind of update saying, hey, I, I was going to tell you the story of my yeah. time here and this is what happens. And then all of a sudden everybody's like this is the cool like who is this kid like what is he doing he's in vegas like he's just this guy i know he's a math teacher in atlanta like what is he doing playing in the biggest tournament in the world and like i i I don't know that's a good question let me me back up what made you comfortable enough to to share before landing committing to share what you were about to experience because some people would say this may not go so well so let me just wait and see and if it goes well then i'll write this kind of recap it was almost such a surreal experience that I had qualified in the first place that I feel like I had an obligation to share. It's like, I'm playing in the main event. Like, how do you not share with your friends and family? And enough people had known about it. I was like, oh, tell me how it goes. I'm like, well, I can do better now. I can actually like blog about it and then make it a fun story. I think I, I, I just enjoy sharing, I suppose. Um, I mean, truly surreal. That first year I qualified. Now it's such second nature because I go and play you know, every tournament uh, every year. But yeah, that first year is like, what is going on? Like, truly, I, I just made the final four. Of the Super- like, I'm playing in this the, the World Series of Poker main event. I I don't belong here, I guess. And, but I quickly gained the confidence once I sat down. I was like, yep, I can play with these guys and, and I can beat these guys. And so the, the cool thing of that first year, the second day, I was placed at a table with literally the guy who's the reigning player of the year from the year prior. And it was strange. He, he looked at me. I don't know why he looked at me out of the whole table. He's like... He's just like, I was like, I don't know your name. I've never seen you before, but I guarantee you either I'm going to knock you out of this tournament or you're going to knock me out of this tournament. I'm like, okay. And about two hours later, I bust him out of the tournament. And he's like, oh my gosh, we actually even placed the last longer bet. I was like, if, if you're, if you're uh, serious about that, let's, let's bet a hundred bucks on it. And he, he was so mad when I knocked him out. You'd never seen him. He'd never seen you. Yeah. I knew who he was. I mean, I, he was again, the reigning world player of the year. I was like, this is going in my blog. I'm just at a table with this guy. This is pretty cool. Um, and, and then he like challenged me. I'm like, yeah, let, let's bet on it. So I guess I got confident pretty fast because I was doing well. So the first First year was a very good experience, but I ended up busting out just short of the money. So I beat out 89% of the field. Uh, I finished about a thousandth when 900 people out of the 8,700 make the money. Mm-hmm. But the feedback I got from my blogs, these people had invested $100 for 1%. I didn't actually end up making the money. Like, that was the most fun $100 I've ever <laughs> invested in my entire life. When are you doing this again? I'm like, well, let's do it again next year. So the next year, I was like, I'm not even going to try to like win my seat online. If you just want to help me buy in, here's the deal. You pay me hundred whatever dollars and you get 1% of my winnings. So I sold shares. I cobbled together my buy-in. And so the next year, you know, there's 7,000 people there and I finished 18th in the whole thing. And frankly, I went out on a really, what they call a bad beat. It was very unfortunate because if I had won that, I would have coasted to the final table and, and that final table is in retrospect widely regarded as one of the weaker final tables in, in the main events history. I was like, man, I if I had one not had that bad beat, I probably would have won that whole tournament. So so just walk us through the bad beat and some people may not understand, but I think the story is gonna be good enough anyway. Like just Yeah, I mean if you ever watch T V online, they got those little percentages. I got it all in with uh probably said seventy five, twenty five, so not extraordinarily bad, but like the guy played his hand so poorly and I played mine really well. So he, he even when he we got all in, he's like, Oh my god, like 
I, I'm so sorry. Like, I, I played that hand so bad. Like, he basically was like, you deserve to win. It wasn't one of those, like, it's poker, like, oh, we both had these crazy hands. It's like, oops. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that was dumb. And then he hits his hand. Um, so it was like, ah, that sucks. But I was so thankful to be there. You know, ESPN covered that, and it was pretty cool. I got sponsored by Poker Stars, which is really big. So they paid me a whole bunch of money to wear this little sticker on my hat <laughs> for two hours. I'm like, okay, he's... That was my teacher salary to wear this little sticker for two hours. Thank you. I'll do that. So poker's been been good to me, but I've never officially been a pro just because I'm so passionate about education and, and that's always been my focus. And that's been a part of why Austin Achieve even exists is I built this huge following of people that know me as this poker guy. But the cool story of, of that big win in 07 is wrote to my whole list, like I kind of believe in like tithing and giving back. And I had this affiliation with this organization in Pakistan. I'd spent the summer prior putting on teacher training workshops. And I was like, look, they run these schools. Like, if we all give 10% of what we win or what we won through this poker thing, we can actually start a school in Pakistan. So that's what we, we did with the money. So it was pretty, pretty awesome. So how did it feel? Uh, amazing. I mean, the, the school served all girls. So in Pakistan, I mean, that that's a big deal. And the head of that organization um, is female and she's just this firecracker, uh, Vita Javed, and she's just truly transforming lives and transforming culture in Pakistan through the work that they do. So it's been an honor to be affiliated with them. And it's just neat that we can bring these strange poker dollars from Las Vegas and create a school of Pakistan. But it's just some things are meant to be in really weird ways, I suppose. So looking back from the fourth quarter, what would you say has been the biggest risk that you've said yes to? And now knowing the way that you approach life, (laughs) (laughs) this is going to be tough for you. You know, you... Your whole risk assessment is yeah. is not the norm. Yeah, I would have to say like the biggest life change committed to is coming back to Austin to start Austin Achieve. Just because I had, I mean, there was a lot of challenges. Like you're starting a school from scratch. I mean, I've been very fortunate to have a strong board of directors, strong family. I've hired some really, really amazing people. But at the end of the day, you're literally starting a school from literally nothing. And, and so from facilities challenges... Yeah, I mean, the the odds of us achieve being a success were by no means guaranteed. And so, again, it goes back to that kind of expected value on the community. It's like, it's worth it. It's worth but it. it was one heck of a, <laughs> oh, your words, a gamble. I'm not going <laughs> to yes, use that word. But I know, I know. It was <laughs> one heck of a decision. <laughs> so this podcast is all about saying yes. How do you say no? Because I, it strikes me, I think, being in your position, you're probably getting all sorts of pitches and proposals and how do you say no probably like boring or by death because i'm so math oriented but it's all like kind of expected value so i guess we austin chief we do get lots of like people wanting to volunteer or do this that and the other and at the end of the day there's only like so many resources we can kind of maintain and have and and it comes down to either time or the value of the impact on the kids. I mean, just the other day, I made a decision on an after-school program that we were investing X amount of dollars, but it was only having Y amount of impact. And it's like, you know, we could reinvest that somewhere over here. So that's kind of how we came to a, to a no, which, again, it's just very, it's very it's math-driven. Math. Now, what about the, the terminology, the verbiage you use? Like when you have to tell someone, hey, we're not going to continue this program or hey, we're not going to buy your product or, hey, I'm not going to be able to join your board because 
I'm already over leveraged with time. If they know me well, it's pretty easy because I'll explain it in terms of math and they know me as kind of a math driven guy. I suppose if they don't know me well, I'll still explain it in terms of math and try to <laughs> get them to understand that I'm math driven and just hope that they get that and, and try to have a degree of empathy. Um, and I do, I do think I, I all jokes aside, I, I, again, thanks to my parents, I feel like I have a pretty strong ability to put myself in kind of shoes of other people I interact with. So if I do know it's somebody that just doesn't get me, I feel like I'll find different ways to communicate and explain and, and kind of put it in different terms. Uh, so you have sort of an empathetic tilt? Uh, I would say so. I wouldn't, wouldn't put that in the top three characteristics of mine, but I do <laughs> think it's, it's in there somewhere. <laughs> what, is the, what is the one daily routine that separates you from your competitors? I would say once I'm committed to something, I'm not wavering, whatever that may be. I mean, if it's Austin Chief, I mean, we're just going to get it done. I don't know if that answers your daily routine, but like maybe it's an indirect answer back to your, you know, what was the biggest risk? Like it's just kind of when I see something that looks like an impossible problem to others, like, no, there's got to be a solution somewhere else. I'm very, very good at solving problems, like especially once I set focus to it. And then in terms of just even life goals, I mean, I was mentioning earlier training for an Ironman. It's just like something I decided to do and it's just, it's going to happen. I've had a couple of little injuries along the way, but like that's, it's going to happen. So, so Peter Drucker says culture eats strategy for breakfast. That's his quote. And I think purpose eats passion for lunch. That's that's my belief. Where do you fall on the passion versus purpose debate? Do you see a real distinction? That's interesting. Um, I don't think they have to be exclusive uh, or mutually exclusive. Uh, I mean, I feel like I have a little bit of both. I mean, I think the work of Austin Chief is very purpose-driven, but I think it takes a degree of passion for it to be successful because you're you're committing your life to something. Um, yeah. Hmm. What would you say has been the most difficult pivot point for you? Gosh, maybe the transition back to Austin. I mean, it was a huge career shift, but even just kind of life shift. I mean, resettling in my hometown. Um, it was, you know, when you when you graduate college, you can, you can go anywhere and do anything. So I go to Atlanta. It's great. Never saw myself there permanently. And then the trip out there, or the life out to L.A. is just, okay, I'm doing this. Like, I'd say mentally coming back to Austin was like a full-on commitment to a big phase of my life. Am I at Austin Chief forever? Perhaps not. Perhaps there are other things in my future, but it probably that shift as easy as it might be because I'm coming home mentally is kind of a, an interesting recommitment to the city. So I have a theory that smart people, and this is unsubstantiated with any research. Okay. I'm going to tell you that now, <laughs> John, because you're going to call me out on it later. But my theory is that smart people tend to be more risk averse. I feel like some of the smarter, and I'm going to lump two terms together here. I know they're different, but even the smarter and the talented people that I know, they tend to to kind of go the prescribed route. Have you found that? I mean, if you think about your friends back at Duke or in other circles. Yeah, I think there's just so many different types of intelligences. I think people who are smart in some of the ways that I might be smart might just understand the math really well and and some people might be smart in totally different ways and they just aren't comfortable with the math and they're they're happy with a more consistent light and there's nothing wrong with that that just could be their different type of intelligence playing out and, and manifesting itself so yeah i'm not sure if i agree yeah. with that full smart people take more conservative approaches um but maybe that's just my experience can you remember a rejection letter you received 
You get turned down at all. I mean, you went, <laughs> you went two for two for undergrad to Notre Dame and Duke, which is great. Have you been turned down for anything? Uh, not too frequently, <laughs> but I'm also pretty calculated about things that I go after, but I'm not, but I also take the appropriate risk, but, um, yeah, in, in the times I feel like I have been turned down, I just like to say, well, I don't know if they're really saying no, they're just saying not yet. And then it's like, huh. we actually need to like figure out how else to get there. So. Yeah. It's interesting because it's, it, some people hear not yet. Other people hear never. Yeah. And it's something that Dweck talks about quite extensively between this growth mindset and this fixed mindset. It's, it's a matter of, okay, I just need to tweak it a little bit and. You know, the next time is going to be the yeah. time that it happens for me. I mean, I've made a lot of good choices, but I've also gotten really lucky um, a lot of times. Do you think it's luck, though? Because you, I mean, here's the thing about luck, right? It seems to me that most of the decisions that you've made have been backed up with some sort of analysis. Okay, a really stringent analysis. So, yeah. how lucky... But even then, it's like, okay, like going back to expected value, I'm like assessing something that might have like a one in six chance, but it pays off X amount. Well, even then, you're going to miss a certain number of times. I feel like I hit those one in six chances more than one in six on top of the math being in my favor. So it's like I, f- I feel like it's been a healthy combo of smart decision making. And even then, I'm, I'm running um, plus EV, they may say, in, in, in the world of poker <laughs> yes. and in life. Yes. All right. So you're 35. Uh-huh. What advice would you give your 21-year-old self? Continue or be comfortable taking those risks and, and just do what you're passionate about. And, and I feel like I was very lucky. I got this feedback early on because I would tell people, I you know took this chance and did Teach for America. And I would go around and tell people, like, I'm really happy. I love teaching. And so many people in mid-careers are like, you don't know how lucky you are to find a job that you love at your age. And, and so I guess truly it'd be to any 21-year-old person, just find something that you love. Um, so you had a lot of people saying, you're lucky. Yeah. Hold on to it. <laughs> yeah. That is almost a little depressing that there's so many people who have ended up in things that they're not happy with. Um, I didn't really answer your question. I guess, yeah. No, it do- I mean... I guess it took me longer than I wished to just totally be all in on education because as much as I loved it in that first semester, I still didn't... I mean, I knew I had a sense that this is my calling, but what that looked like, it took me some time to say, oh, well, I'm going to start a school and do things like that. And I guess that that's necessary because you need that experience. Um, yeah. Hmm. So when you were walking into teaching for the first time, for you, the fallback, if it didn't go the right way, was it law school? Was it investment banking, consulting? Probably law school is leading. I could have seen the investment banking component. I think that was more of the college days. I was thinking, oh, I'll go to Wall Street and do stuff like that. I think I started doing away with that late college years and, you know, through young life, but knowing I really wanted to work with kids and do something. So even if I had gone back to law school, I know I was looking for a way to like make it good for the community type of law practice. I know there's plenty of those out there, but I couldn't figure out what was right for me. So I just, I never solved that problem. I was like, okay, I'll just clear that this education piece is is Hmm. the thing for me. Hmm. Okay, we reached the two-minute drill. Rapid-fire questions. Okay. Now you're ready. Are you on social media? Mm, barely. <laughs> okay, 140 characters. You have one last tweet for humanity. This is the last time you're going to tweet. Uh, live life to its fullest. One cliche that you would eradicate 
from language. <laughs> well, I'm guilty of using it, but doing what's best for kids. It drives me crazy, but I say it all the time. So I would just get rid of it. What is the title of the mandatory class that every college student should take? Uh, intro to poker. <laughs> okay. What is the book that you have not written? What's the title of the book? Uh, I'd say my general theory of ed reform and both kind of short and long term. Needs a snappier title than that, but it's, that would be the no, we'll theme of the that. book. We'll get, <laughs> we'll get the editors on that. Okay, so let me ask you this. So it's, for me being a football coach, everything comes back to some football metaphor. So it's fourth and one. You've got one last down. What for you is is a go-to source of inspiration, whether it's a book or poem or movie? Or, is there something that's you find that over the course of your life that you've gone back to for inspiration? I'd say anything that directly deals with the kids I serve. So as a quick, easy example, just the other day we had our students write some letters to council members regarding an issue we were dealing with. And just reading through those letters where they talk about their experience, also cheap, I mean, I just started crying. I'm like, oh my gosh. And it's just like, this is, this is beautiful. So anything that has to do with that direct tie to the, the, the kids I serve. With Austin Achieve, what's the desired outcome for you? You talked about you think it would be incredible at some point if the alums come back and take it. Like, how will you know that you've reached that that EV? Uh, I'd say there's two parts. Uh, our mission is to serve the kids that are with us. And so it would manifest out when they come take my job and or come t start teaching at the school. That's going to be really awesome. But the other theory of change that would go in that book is I want Austin Achieve to leverage our success and create a sense of competition among the schools that are still struggling to where they're feeling the pressure to get a whole lot better. Uh, I think the charter school movement is a failure if we don't put that appropriate healthy pressure on the system as a whole to get better. <laughs> John, thank you for visiting the tribe. We enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks for having me. It Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to A Tribe Called Yes. For more information, you can visit us at atribecalledyes.com and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. And don't forget, keep saying yes. Yes.